Well, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Glenn, and I um, am very pleased and very surprised to find myself speaking to you today. Uh, I've only been part of Messio Day, my wife and I, for a little over a year, though we've been part of the Jesus People community across the street for decades. So a few weeks ago, Dave approached me and said, I've observed you're a talker. And you seem familiar with the Bible. Do you ever preach? And I said, well, sometimes. He said, great, how about November 21st? So here I am. Um, I must open with a request, though, all right? When I was three years old, I learned my first multi-syllable word, a word that I heard my mother use frequently in reference to myself. And the word was obnoxious. <laughs> Somebody's clapping. So it was known from a very early age that I was born with the gift of gab and an outsized mouth much too large for the skinny little body that, uh, that contained it. Um, but I loved being an obnoxious kid because I really enjoyed the rise that I could get out of adults every time I opened my mouth. However, I was never sure if the obnoxious thing I was planning on saying was going to result in an indulgent smile, isn't he cute, or a disapproving frown. Can't you do something about that child? And truth be told, to this day, I still can't anticipate what kind of response I'm going to get when I open my mouth. So as a result, I'm actually rather insecure. So while I may seem calm, cool, collected, and in complete control of my little environment here, the fact is it is an act. I'm actually quite nervous. And there is one thing that could threaten my fragile grip on my composure while I am presenting the word of the Lord, and that is the sound of your cell phone ringing. So I am going, not request, I am going to beg you on my knees, have mercy on me, a sinner, as I speak to this, my new church, for the first time. Please turn off your cell phones. Don't just silence them, because you know if that thing starts wiggling in your pocket, you're going to be, you know, right in the middle. I promise you, it will not damage the phone to power it down for a few minutes. They're actually designed that way. And surely you will not die if your phone is off during the sermon. All right? So please. Okay, I'm going to pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, for the gift and the opportunity to present uh, your word to this, my church home. Uh, please uh, cor uh, uh, course correct anything that comes out of my mouth so that it lands true and translate the, the, you know, my feeble efforts to, to um, uh, really speak to each individual soul here today, that they hear not what I'm trying to say, but what, what you wish to speak. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. All right. I love a wireless microphone. Oh, yeah. What an invention. Okay, when I was in grade school in Teaneck, New Jersey in the 70s, that's the 1970s, uh, I had a good friend, Peter Hecht. I thought of him as a good friend, but I, didn't, I wasn't a very good friend to him. Now, we all called him Fathead because it was true. So while everyone called him Fathead, only I composed songs and limericks in commemoration of his oversized cranium. I like to follow him around on the playground and like, you know, you know flip his sneaker off of his heel. I, I, why do kids do these things? 
Um, I think as in other areas of life, I was waiting to get a rise out of him because it's just what I do. And I never did. He always took it in stride. He'd kind of smile nervously. And, but um, I knew that I was not treating my friend well. And I think sometimes my other friends tried to point this out to me. Uh, what was I waiting for to treat the guy right? What did I need from him before I could be a decent friend to him? Some kind of a dramatic response, a confrontation, a deep, painful conviction of guilt in my heart. I don't, I, I don't know. But one day, I was over at Mark Brownstein's house early in the morning. We were all going to meet at Mark's house and then walk to school together. And Mark and I were goofing around in the backyard with this amazing new invention that his dad had just obtained for the garden hose. It was a pistol grip garden hose water sprayer. This is like 1969, and this thing was brand new. We'd never seen anything like it before. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you squeeze it gently, and this fine mist comes out in a great big cone shape, and you can make a rainbow. Or you squeeze it all the way down, and this laser-focused jet of water comes streaming out, and it, you, you can shoot it halfway down the block. You could cut granite with it. Or you could hose down Peter Hecht as he comes up the driveway, <laughs> which I did. That night, Peter and his parents showed up at my house. There was a conference, and at the end of which, Peter and I were through. He was done with me. I was never to speak to him again. We had to continue to get along. We were in the same class, and we were in the same Cub Scout den, but I wasn't to talk to the guy anymore. I completely ruined a fine friendship through my own indiscipline. What was I waiting for? Nothing prevented me treating the guy right. I knew I was not treating him well. What prevents me from doing what I know perfectly well to be right? What makes it so easy to do wrong? What was I waiting for? I think some of the Christians at the church at Pergamum were waiting for some dramatic intervention before they would start doing what was right and stop doing what they knew perfectly well was wrong. Why is that so hard? When you're on a road trip with your family and you're in the back seat with your, with your little siblings, why is it so hard to just leave them alone? In that situation, doing right means doing nothing at all. Just, just stop, just stop. What makes that so hard? I don't know, but that's why I'm calling this sermon, don't make me stop this car, or do I have to come back there? Okay, the Church of Pergamon, let me give you a little bit of background here, just a little. Can we get that map on the screen? Ah, there it is. Can you believe we've got all the way to the end of a sermon series on the seven churches of Revelations? I don't think anybody put up a map yet, did they? Well, better late than ever. It's our last chance. So anyway, here, here's the rough locations of the seven churches of the, of the Scripture uh, overlaid on a modern uh, map of Turkey. Of course, at the time, they were provinces of the Roman Empire. Um, and as we've learned over the series, many of them were on trade routes or they're on the coast and they're very wealthy through commerce. Pergamum is the furthest one to the north, at the, I think at the top left there. Uh, it was neither on a trade route nor on the coast, but it was the capital of its province, and it had been for many hundreds of years long before it was folded into the Roman Empire. So it was a place where there was power and influence and a lot of tax money floating around. Uh, can we get the next slide, please? It was in a beautiful location. Um, it was, uh, th this is a view from the lower city and the upper city where the Acropolis was is in the background. And 
do you, do you see like this triangular shaped scar on the hillside up there? That is the ruin of a big, beautiful theater. Next slide, please. There is that theater looking down into the valley. Yeah, a spectacular place. Gorgeous. The Greeks really knew how to pick the places for their cities, and they were just masters of architecture. Can we see the next slide, please? This is a reconstruction of what that hilltop looked like in the days of John. It was magnificent. Uh, this thing at the bottom left is a uh, temple to Zeus. It is one of the largest of its type, an unusual design. In the middle is this huge altar. You see the smoke rising to the imaginary god and a pleasing aroma to him. Uh, elsewhere on this Acropolis, there were several other temples to a bunch of other gods, because that's what the Greeks did. One of these buildings, I'm not sure which one, uh, there was this brand new thing going on in the days of the Apostle John. Uh, Caesar Augustus, who is Caesar during the time of Jesus and of uh, the Apostles, he invented this idea of worshiping the Caesar uh, you know, him, himself. Um, and Pergamum was the first city to get an application in to build a temple to Caesar. So the first and oldest temple to the worship of the head of state is in this complex somewhere. And this becomes significant later on. Now, as for the church itself at Pergamum, we know absolutely nothing except for these few verses in the Bible. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible or elsewhere in uh, church history. Okay, so let's dive into the letter itself. Verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, audience participation time. Who knows what a sharp, double-edged sword typically represents in the New Testament? Word of God, yes, very good. Such as in Ephesians chapter 6, this is the popular uh, armor of God uh, passage, where Paul says, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There's a connection between the spirit and the word, and they're likened to a sword. Now, is this a uh, this sword of God? Are we talking like a two-inch shiv that you made from a little plastic uh, knife in the cafeteria? I don't think so. My favorite description of what the word of God is like, what kind of a sword it is like, of course, is from Hebrews chapter 4. This is one of my favorite verses ever. ever. It, it always strikes terror to my soul. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is one mean sword. I don't want to come up against that sword. That, that is scary. And so now that I look at the opening to this letter, these are the words of the one with a sharp double-edged sword. Those sound like scary words, like Coming up next are words that are going straight to the bone and that can judge the secret meditations of your heart. So I'm already nervous. Like what comes next in this letter? Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, personal preference as a preacher, I am much more interested in talking about Jesus than Satan. So I'm going to ignore the two references to Satan in this passage. If you want a demonology sermon, you've got to recruit a different pastor. Um, okay, so Satan. I don't care. So now we move on to the commendation section of the letter. As you've, you've learned the, the basic format of these letters over our sermon series. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful, serv my faithful witness, excuse me, who was put to death in your city 
where Satan lives. Now, tradition has it, we're not positive about this, but tradition has it that Antipas was the first bishop of Pergamum, appointed by the Apostle John himself, so they may have been personally acquainted. Um, we're, we're not certain, but this is a pretty strong speculation. You look carefully at the words. He's not described as, oh, my faithful servant, my faithful son, my faithful follower, my faithful disciple. It's my faithful witness who was put to death, as if the witness and the death are related. And what was the situation of the church? You didn't renounce your faith even when your pastor was put to death for his witness in Christ. And the notion, again, we're not positive of this, but it makes very good sense. The idea that in this city, in this generation, the idea of worshiping the Caesar had just come online, it seems very probable that Antipas was put to death because they were dedicating this new temple and everybody was supposed to get together and support the governor in his efforts to uh, support the Caesar and improve the political stature of the city and so forth. And Antipas may have simply refused to bring his church along to participate in this abhorrent ritual. He paid for it with his life. The church was under heavy pressure to just give up, and they did not. So this is a church that had been deeply traumatized, but held faithful and true and is commended for it for all eternity in the word as a result. Nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites so that they offered so they ate meat offered to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, there are some of those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so now we come to one of those obscure verses for which Revelations is so famous. Now, in an earlier draft of this sermon, I had about 30 minutes of material on these two uh, verses, but I have a meeting to get to Monday afternoon, so I can't, you know, we, we, we're going to describe that part. I'm going to keep going here. Um, as, <laughs> as Inigo Montoya says to the man in black, I'll explain. There's too much. I will sum up. Balak and Balam. Balak and Balaam refers to a lengthy story in the book of Numbers, chapters 23 and 24, the whole chapter. Um, but in short, Balak, king of Moab, the Israelites are moving through his territory on their way to Canaan. He's feeling nervous. He practices a little preemptive self-defense, and he hires Balaam to come down and curse the Israelites. Balaam tries three times to curse them, and three times he blesses them. He loses the gig, and Balak fires him. And that story ends with uh, these words at the end of chapter 24. Then Balaam left and returned home, and Balak also went on his way. So where is Balaam teaching Balak anything? Well, the very next verse, chapter 25, begins this way. This is Numbers 25, first verse or two. While Israel lived at Chittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, etc., etc., and it was a disaster for Israel, and now we see the connection. But I still don't see any Balaam teaching Balak anything. This is part of the oral tradition. It is understood. It, it doesn't happen to be recorded in the scriptures, but it's understood by uh, the ancient Jewish commentators that after Balaam got fired, perhaps as damage control, maybe he's hoping to get future uh, business from, from this king, so he's going to try to patch it up as best he can. 
Before he parts, he says to Block, hey, listen, I understand what your objective was. I'm sorry I couldn't work up a curse, but it doesn't really work that way anyhow when you're a prophet. I don't tell God what to do. He tells me what to say. And he told me to bless these people. But here's what you do. You want to undermine the Israelites? It's very simple. I don't have to uh, 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 invoke their God's wrath against them. They can do it themselves. They fall for this every time. All you got to do is send some attractive Moabite women in amongst the Israelite camp to entice and seduce the men. They'll fall for it every time. And before you know it, the ladies will be saying, hey, come home with me. I want to introduce you to my parents. We're going to have a nice Sunday lunch. We've got this nice piece of meat that was offered to an idol. It's only the best. And then dad wants you to go to church with him. And before you know it, they've fallen into idolatry and sexual sin. And in the days of Balaam, as in the days of John, as in our day, idolatry and sexual sin seem to drive God absolutely bonkers. Why exactly would be the subject of another sermon series, so we're not going to cover that either. So, so there you have it. We've got this uh, suggestion that there was uh, still some pagan worship and some sexual immorality amongst some within this church. Likewise, there's this mysterious reference to the Nicolaitans. What is a Nicolaitan? A Nicolaitan is a person who follows the teachings of someone named Nicholas. Do we know who this Nicholas is? Actually, we do. In Acts chapter 6, we read the story of um, the apostle Peter appointing the first few um, deacons to the church. Things were getting, you know, kind of big and out of hand at the church at Jerusalem. So I think in verse 5, the names of seven men are listed, men of good character and strong repute who are named as the first deacons of the Christian church, and one of them is Nicholas of Antioch. There's a lot of chatter in the early church fathers about this Nicolaitan heresy, and they all agree that this is the Nicholas that we're talking about. Nicholas started out strong, one of the first elders of the church, but by the end of his career as a church leader, he had concocted a heresy. And which was it? It was like the teaching of Balaam, which involved idolatry, and sexual immorality. So which is it going to be, door number one or door number two? Well, it turns out that Nicholas managed to rationalize wife swapping. So there it is, door number two, it was sexual, sexual sin. Um, again, how he got there is lost to history, but apparently this heresy persisted for years because who doesn't like a good justification for something you really want to do? Mm-hmm. Why did I tell you about that? You want to see me fall apart right before your very eyes? Come on. Have pity. We're almost done here. Let me finish strong. Um, okay, so, so that's, that's what the issue that was going on there. It doesn't say the whole church was, was messed over. There are just some who are still involved in pagan worship and maybe a little bit of temple prostitution on the side because... What goes better together than, you know, sex and barbecue, right? Um, and so what's the solution? What's the, what's the uh, prescription? Verse 16, repent, therefore. And, of course, all the letters, they have the same one-word solution, repent. Just stop it. There's no big complicated formula like, now if only thou shalt the following, and this ne the, if thou shalt only perform the next 17 dot points in order, not proceeding to the next until you've satisfied the No, it's just one word. It's repent. Just stop. Stop. Everybody stop. Stop it with the idolatry. Stop it with the, uh, with the, the fornication or with the love of money or the, the lukewarm or losing your way. Whatever the issue was in each of the church, churches, 
The answer is always the same. Would you just stop? Easier said than done, right? Well, it comes with a threat. Where's my place here? It comes with a threat. There it is. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoa, that sharp sword is in the mouth now. Which part of the body is associated with words? Yeah, that would be the mouth. So if the sword is the word of God and it's in Jesus' mouth, this is just tightening the understanding that we're talking about when Jesus talks to you. It is like he's coming at you with a sharp sword that goes right to where your soul and your spirit divide. Okay? Yeah. And that's smarts. Now, if Jesus comes to me with the word of God, like a sword coming out of his mouth, I don't want him to come to me and say, do I have to stop this car? Don't make me come back there. We've talked about this, Glenn. What are you doing here? How many times do we have to go over this? Do you want me to fight you? Ron, do you want to fight Jesus? If we work together, do you think we could take him on? I don't think so. If Jesus comes to you with a word sharp as a double-edged sword, what do you want to hear from Jesus? What's the word that you want to hear? It's a famous verse. Come on. Well, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear, man, am I disappointed. Do we have to fight about this? <laughs> that is not what I want to hear from Jesus. So, and if all i got to do is repent, why can't I? What makes that so hard? And there's a promise. Now we come to the next, the last section of the, the, the letter, because this follows the same form as all the other letters to the other churches. It, it wraps up with a promise for those who do repent. To the one who is victorious, who does make... Ma attain some mastery over sin so that it does not dominate your life. You're living some kind of a victorious Christian life. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, the hidden manna, that's not too obscure. In uh, Exodus chapter 16, in verse 32 or thereabouts, the Lord commands the Israelites, hey, that manna that you're getting out there in the wilderness, Hide some of it in a jar and stash it in the Ark of the Covenant as a perpetual reminder that when you were in the wilderness, I gave you bread for life and, and sustained you during that time. Now, in John's Gospel, oh, who wrote this letter that we're reading? John, right? Same John. In John's Gospel, John remembered Jesus uh, delivering this teaching. Uh, John chapter 6, starting at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now what ritual do we observe every Sunday right after the sermon? Communion, yes. That little chunk of bread that we dip in the grape juice, it's symbolic of Jesus as the bread of life. And we partake of it. Jesus offers you him, his very self and a little white stone with a name on it that only you will know. Now, that verse is completely obscure. We have no idea what John or Jesus may have meant 
particularly by the little white stone, though theories abound. In fact, look at the wording of the verse. Whose name is on the stone? It doesn't say. It's not clear. It could be a name for you. It could be a new name for Jesus. It could be a new name for Batman. It's not clear. But because it's not clear, you don't have to get hung up on, oh, do I have the right interpretation? Is it this? Is it that? Is it that? We don't know. What does it mean to you? When I think of Jesus has for me a little white rock with a secret name on it just for me, I picture a pet rock, okay? Child of the 70s that I am. Some of you don't know what, I, what is a pet rock. Picture this cute little white stone with a little face painted on it, and underneath there's like the secret password, and it's just between me and Jesus. That's the kind of relationship I want with Jesus. I don't want him coming at me with a sword saying, what are you doing here again? I want him to say, here, look, I've got a secret for you. It's just between you and me. And this stone is only for you. If you don't claim it, no one will. And then the little face on the pet rock will go all sad and weepy as it sits on the shelf unclaimed. Why would you stick with idolatry and immorality, which tends to lead towards loneliness and sickness and sometimes death, when Jesus offers you his own very self and that intimately? Why don't we just repent? I don't know. What makes it so hard? I don't know. How do you just go about repenting and then living a victorious Christian life? Well, at my age, I seem to have concluded that living the victorious Christian life is the work of a lifetime and probably the subject for a completely different sermon series, so we're not going to go into that today either. But I have a suggestion of where to start. What did I say we're doing right after the sermon? Communion. Communion is confessing your sins to the Lord and repenting of them and asking for forgiveness and asking that relationship to be restored. And then you take a little morsel of bread, which is the bread of life itself. It's a great place to start. Are you going to repent of every single sin right now, instantly, and never turn back? Maybe. It happens. That could be cool. If that is your ambition for today, go for it. If that seems overwhelming, if that sword of the Spirit is jabbing at you, you know perfectly well what it is that the Lord would rather fight with you about, that you really need to let it go, but it just seems so overwhelming. Start with whatever is right before you. Repent of whatever you can repent of right now and ask Jesus to help you become worthy of receiving that little white stone. Nobody else gets it. It's all for you. Tell him you want your white stone and your secret password. It's your stone and yours alone. Don't, don't, don't pass it up. Don't let, and don't let that poor little thing go lonely on the shelf in the warehouse at the pearly gates, okay? Amen. I'm going to pray again for us.